The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Amen. So uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there because uh, I did something a little different this morning when I made the PowerPoint. I did not put the text that we're going to be in on the screens, but I did put all of the extra text that we're going to be bouncing around. So you didn't have to turn. But I figured everybody's got a Bible or a smartphone with a Bible app. They can probably pull it up pretty quick. So Acts chapter 8, verse 4. I'm hoping that helps you stay engaged a little bit too. I'm forcing you to be engaged this morning. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. All right, so a few years ago, I got pretty sick with like a sinus infection. And uh, I had to sing, lead worship like probably two or three weeks from that point. And so at first I thought, sinus infection, I'll get over it in a few days, I'll be fine. But it just progressively got worse. And, uh, and it got to the point to where like my voice was gone. Like, I couldn't hardly talk. I definitely couldn't sing. And uh, I was starting to get a little bit nervous because it was like a week before. And I'm wondering, I'm taking all this over-the-counter medicine, like NyQuil and, and all this stuff. And I'm wondering, what is the problem? Why am I not getting better? Why am I getting worse? And uh, I really started kind of getting a little bit stressed out. Like, I've got to fill. I think I was filling in for Julian one week when he was gone. And I'm like, i got to fill in for Julian. And I'm going to be in trouble if I can't pull this off. And so uh, I started realizing, doing a little bit of reading online, uh, and realized that there's different kind of medicines for colds. And uh, based on your symptoms, you need to take different kinds of medicines. And so, you know, they have decongestants that, that kind of dry up the mucus. And that's what I was taking. So all it was doing was making the mucus really thick on my vocal cords and making it to where I couldn't sing at all. And so then I realized that there's expectorants. If you take that, it loosens up the mucus. And so as soon as I started taking the right medicine... I was fine. It went away, it loosened it up, and then I was fine, and I was able to pull it off, and, uh, and, and it wasn't a big deal. But I realized is that I had a faulty understanding of cold medicine, right? Like, I, I thought all cold medicine was equal. You just take NyQuil, you take Zyrtec, you take uh, Mucinex, it's all the same. And I real, realized really quick that's not true. They're, they all serve a different purpose. And so uh, I had a faulty understanding, and it led to faulty expectations, right? I had this faulty understanding of how cold medicine worked, and I expected what I was taking to fix the problem, when in reality it wasn't designed to do that. And so what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is the fact that so many people have this same issue when it comes to the gospel. They have a faulty understanding of what the gospel is, how they receive it, or even what makes it a treasure. Some people don't even really grasp what is the treasure of the gospel, what, what makes the gospel so awesome. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see what, what that is. Um, a lot of people view the gospel as something they can kind of strip down. Like, I like that part of the gospel, so I'm going to add that. And I like that part of the gospel, I'm going to add that. But I don't like that part of the gospel, I don't like that part. And so they feel like I can t- kind of take it, the parts that I like it and move away the parts that I don't like. But that's not how it is. That's not how it works. Uh, a lot of people want the benefits of knowing Jesus, but they don't want to be like Jesus. 
They, they don't want the sacrifice. They don't want the humility. They don't want the sinlessness. They don't want the surrender. They want heaven and they want comfort in life. That's what they come to Jesus for, but that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. We see this played out in modern politics, right? How many politicians that are, that are Republicans do you know that all of a sudden they're evangelicals when it comes time to vote, right? We used to have in this very church a politician that literally showed up about four weeks before election and then stayed about two weeks after and then we never saw him again. He came to get votes because he knew if he could you know, get that evangelical vote, then people would, uh, then he would, ha- you know, he would win the election. He knew that to win in this part of the country, you had to be an evangelical. So he was using the gospel for his own gain. And we see that all the time. Politicians do this all the time. They, they, they use the gospel to increase voter support. And, and many are duped because the guy says something about God or reverse to some moral standard that aligns with scripture. And so they think, oh, this guy must love God. And so I'm gonna vote for this guy. In our text this morning, we're introduced to a guy named Simon that is guilty of something very, very similar to what I just talked about. Simon saw the gospel as a means to an end. It was something he could manipulate to glorify himself. And Simon's story is a warning to all of us to seriously evaluate our hearts to ensure that we have a pure understanding of what the gospel is and its purpose in our life. See, I don't think that us this morning, most of us in here, we, we probably come with pure hearts, like we really want to honor God, right? Most of us, you're here uh, on, on Memorial Day Sunday, you're, you really want to honor God with your life, and so you're probably not going to come and try to manipulate the gospel intentionally, but sometimes we do things unintentionally. We may have a misunderstanding of what the gospel is, and so we're going to look at Simon's story and figure out what some of his misunderstandings about the gospel were, and hopefully make sure that none of those apply to us. So let's kind of start with some context. Where are we at up to this point? Remember, Stephen was stoned. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, because of the heavy persecution that was coming, the church begins to scatter, which is what they were supposed to do from the beginning. Now they've scattered out, and and, and things are starting to happen in other parts of the world. And so uh, we're going to learn about uh, Philip here. Philip was one of the ones who kind of scattered away, and he ends up in the city of Samaria. So it says in verse 4, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. So Philip was a lot like Stephen. He was, he was uh, a deacon in the church uh, there in Jerusalem. And so he goes down into Samaria and he starts uh, preaching the gospel and he starts performing these wonderful acts. And people start to see that and they start to listen and they are swayed by his preaching. It says they begin to believe. And then we're going to learn about this guy named Simon in verse 9. So We're going to look this morning at three elements of the gospel that Simon had a faulty understanding of. Okay, so three elements. That's all we're going to be looking at, and then we'll be done. If you're taking notes, the first element that he had a a misunderstanding of, he had a faulty understanding of self. All right, so let's look at verse 9 and see what it says. It says, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. So we have this guy named Simon. He's a sorcerer. He's basically a con artist, okay? He is duping everyone into believing that he's got this great power, and he loves the attention. He loves the fact that people are thinking that he's awesome. You ever met someone that thought more highly of themselves than reality? Like, they thought that they were hot stuff, yeah? When I was in middle school, uh, there was this kid who walked the halls of our middle school, and I'm telling you, he was literally, like, this big. And uh, I wasn't huge in middle school, but I was average, and he would walk around like, you ever seen the old cartoons where the little dog was like the boss and he had the big dog that was the bruiser for him? That's this kid's attitude, but he didn't have the big bruiser. He just got beat up all the time. I don't know what his deal was, but he would walk up and pick fights with everybody and he was constantly aggressive with people and thought that he was bigger than what he really was. That's kind of how Simon is. He's got this, this really high view of himself. Um, he's basically like the David Blaine of Jerusalem, okay? He's... he's He's this magician who everybody thinks is all-powerful, and he really loves this attention and fame. He's a narcissist. He's full of pride in his heart. He didn't stop the people when they said he was a great power of God. In fact, he claimed to be somebody great is what the text gives us. So we got this guy named Simon who loves this attention. He's full of himself. He thinks that he's awesome. And so... The reality, you can't come to God with a prideful heart because it's going to prevent you from true surrender. When you come to God with a prideful heart, it, it prevents you from really surrendering yourself to God. And so for Simon, that's, that's the issue. He's, he's not coming to God with a humble heart. Here's what Psalms 51, 17 says. It says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. So the appropriate attitude to come to God with is with one of brokenness and humility. When we come to God for salvation, when we come to God for him to save us, if we show up with this prideful heart of I'm, I'm a good person, I'm not a bad person, then it prevents us from really surrendering because we're not coming to God with a humble heart. And so two things, well, before that, Remember the attitude of the prodigal son. The prodigal son runs from home. He takes his dad's money, goes, runs from home, spends his money, ends up in a pig uh, pen uh, feeding pigs and, and starts to get really hungry because he hasn't eaten in a really long time. He looks down at the pig food and he's like, man, I could eat that right now. I'm pretty hungry. And he realizes in that moment, it says, the scripture says he came to his senses in that moment. And he realized, what am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I running away from, from the, the, the home that I had. What, what, what kind of decision did I make? In that moment, the pride comes down, right? And it says that, that, that he, he didn't come to the father like, let me come back into your arms. He, he comes to the father, he's like, can I just be your servant? Like, I know I don't deserve anything, but can I just be your servant? Because I know I'll be fed better there. That's the attitude that we need to come to God with. Two things we need to understand about ourselves. One, we are not innately good. You're not a good person. If you came in this morning and you think, I'm a pretty good person, the reason you think that is because you're looking at other people around you and comparing yourself to those other people. The reality is you're evil. Your heart is evil, and the only thing that makes you good is the fact that you know Jesus. 
We are not innately good, and I can prove that to you because here's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. All of us, all of us, including you, have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Scripture tells us over and over and over again that we are not good people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we compare ourselves to others, it's easy to say, well, I'm not as bad as that dude. I see what he's doing. I'm not as bad as that guy. But when we compare ourselves to the righteousness of God, our best is nothing but filthy rags before God. We are not innately good. The statement, I'm not that bad, is a statement of pride when it's said before God. Or, I'm not as bad as that guy. Again, a statement of pride. And this is the mantra of our culture. It's the religion of our culture. Um, you guys know the show The View. Everybody in here, I'm sure, is a big fan of The View. Um, you guys love that show and watch it all the time. There's a uh, host on The View sometimes. Her name is Raven Simone. Um, she was a Disney actress, and that's about it. I don't know what else makes her qualified to be on the show. But uh, one of the things that she said... They were talking about Christianity and what, what Christianity is all about. And she said this, that's what all religions are about anyway, be a good person. Listen, Christianity, if you're here and you think that Christianity is about be a good person, you've missed it. You've missed it. Just like Simon, he's like, I'm a good guy. I'm great. You've missed it. Many of us probably aren't fans of Raymond Simone, but we might be fans of this next guy. Donald Trump said, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Now, I'm not trying to get political here, but that's not a repentant heart. That's somebody that doesn't see themselves as sinful. That's someone who thinks that they're good. And Scripture teaches that we are not good. We are not good. We are sinful beings at heart. And left to our own power and own strength, we will pursue evil every single time. Do you understand that? The only thing that makes you good is the, is the faithfulness and the grace of God that speaks in your heart and says, don't do that, and then you pursue good. And left to your own strength, you will pursue evil every single time. Look at the flood. God looks out and he sees complete unrighteousness. Left our own strengths, that's who we are. You were not good, and your best is but filthy rags before God. The second thing that we need to understand about ourselves is that we are not equals with God. We are not equals with God. And I think that sounds like a duh statement, but it has to be said. 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Listen, Simon was living for himself in his own glory. He wanted people to look at him and think, man, this guy is awesome. Look at all the stuff that he does. Look how powerful he is. Look who this guy is. Peter's saying, look, man, your glory is like a flower in the grass. It just snaps and breaks off and is gone. And then he says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Peter's saying, look, you as a human being, your life is frail, it's temporal, but God is eternal, 
and we are nothing like God. There's a theology out there that says that we are God's, little g. Because we're created in his image. That's the, the idea that they, they pull that out of. We are not like God's. We are nothing like God. And most of us would never claim equality with God. Our theology is not that bad, right? But our actions scream it every single time we disobey his commands. We would never verbally say, I'm better than God. But when we say, you know what, God, I know your word says this, but we scream we're better than God. If we come to the cross thinking we aren't that bad or that we know better than God, we're coming with the wrong posture and there's no repentance in that, which means there's no salvation either. You can't come to the cross before God and say, I'm not that good of a person. I mean, I'm not that bad of a person, but give me salvation anyway. That's not how it works. You have to come to the cross with a broken spirit, mourning your sin, asking God, please take this from me and save me. So he had a faulty understanding of self. He also had a faulty understanding of salvation. Verse 13 says this, even Simon himself believed. Wow, so it looks like Simon gets saved here. It says after he was baptized, so even even, um, Philip, obviously thought that he had gotten saved, he baptized him. He ends up following Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So Simon seems to have all of the identifying marks of a true follower of Jesus. He believes, he's baptized, and then he follows Philip. See, he gets involved in ministry, he starts serving, he starts following Philip, and he wants to be part of what he's got going on. This is a scary reality that someone can look genuine on the outside, believe that they have a genuine conversion, yet not truly have a saving faith. Here's what Jesus says on the same topic. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, listen, this is the scary part, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I don't know about you all, but I've never cast out no demons. I've not performed any miracles. There will be people who stand before God one day who have done all of those things, who have preached, says prophesied in your name. And yet he's going to look at them in the eyes and say, depart from me. King James says, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. What a terrifying reality. And here's why it's so important that we understand what salvation is. is because for many people, that's their reality. James 2.19 says this, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Here's the line that we have to make sure that we don't cross. Intellectual belief in God's existence is not enough. Just intellectually acknowledging that God is real, that Jesus died on a cross, that he is who he said he was, just intellectually believing those things is not enough. It will not save you. James says, look, even the demons believe that. And they actually fear God. They shudder at his name. It's all about faith. 
It's all about surrender. There's a difference between believing something's true intellectually and giving yourself to that thing. Giving yourself over to that thing is faith. Letting God control your life and saying, I understand that I don't have the ability to control my life. I'm not, I shouldn't be the authority of my life. And letting God take the driver's seat of your life, that is faith. And that is what will save us. So many people come with a distorted view of salvation. And so this morning, I want to give you three important truths of salvation. One, salvation isn't just about escaping consequences. It's about escaping sin. Salvation isn't just about escaping consequences, it's about escaping sin. When confronted by Peter and John for trying to buy the Holy Spirit later in the text, we're going to read that in just a minute, what does Simon respond with? He says in verse 24, pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He's more concerned with what's going to happen to him rather than the sin that's in his heart that brings spiritual death. It's important that we know what the problem really is. The problem isn't hell. Do you understand that this morning? The problem isn't hell. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. It's not that ultimately sin will lead you to hell. The problem is that you're dying from sin and you need to deal with that first. So many people want to come to Jesus just to avoid the punishment of hell. To them, Jesus is the get out of hell free card from Monopoly. The gospel is more about dealing with the disease than it is dealing with the consequences of the disease. Listen, hell is bad, but the worst part of hell is not having intimacy with God. That's the worst part of hell. And that is what sin does to us, is it breaks the connection with God here in this moment, in your life now. The problem is not the consequence of your sin. The problem is your sin. We don't come to God and say, God, please, I don't want to go to hell. We come to God and say, God, please, I don't want to be a sinful being anymore. Number two, salvation isn't about changing behavior. It's about changing your desires. Changing behavior is easier than changing desires, right? When I was a kid and my dad would say, do X, Y, Z, I did what he said because he was bigger than me. But I didn't necessarily want to do what he said. Right? So it's, it's one thing to conform your behaviors. It's another thing to change your heart. Simon knew how to play the game. He believed. He said the right stuff. He got baptized. He got involved in Philip's ministry. But he still missed it. Why? Because changing your behavior is never good enough. It's not the point of the gospel. The gospel is so much bigger than just looking the part. God performs a miracle in us when he changes our hearts and gives us new desires. Here's, a, here's an example of this. We know that covetousness and idolatry is a sin, right? We all understand that. We get that from, from scripture. We know that coveting your neighbor's stuff, idolizing things before God, those things are sin, right? And the truth is, many of us struggle with those two things, right? Especially in the culture today, we see someone with a new truck, we're like, I don't want to have that new truck, right? Or we see someone buy a really nice house, and we're like, well, my house isn't as big and as nice as theirs. I want their house, Right? Or we start to idolize certain things like money and, and power and those things. And so, just like anybody else, those are things that I would struggle with too. And so, I don't want to just avoid going into debt to buy my dream house or my dream car. That's not my goal. You know, I'm not just trying to avoid 
stepping out into you know, debt and buying those things. I want to be, I want to avoid being someone that has a dream house or has a dream car. I want to be someone whose my dreams are the same as God's dreams. That's what I want. I don't want to be someone whose my, 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 the thing in my life that I'm focusing on are things of this world. I want God to change my heart and cause me to want the things that he wants, which is building his kingdom and seeing dead people be made alive spiritually. Those are the things that I want. Those are the things that I want to be passionate about. But that doesn't happen by changing my behavior. That happens by God changing my heart. God is interested in changing our hearts, not just our behavior. If our focus is simply the behavior, we've missed it. So many may think, okay, well, what about James? James says faith without works is dead. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine a train on a train track. The track is the moral commands of Scripture, the things that we should be doing, right? But the, the engine and the fuel that makes the train move, that's the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit in our life. It does no good for us to say, all right, here's the tracks. Get to moving, right? That's impossible. It does no good. We can't look at someone and say, all right, here's the tracks of moral standard. Get, get the train moving. They can't do it without the engine and the fuel to make it go, without the gospel, without the Holy Spirit leading in their life and driving them along. So it's not just that we look at good works and we think, I need my life to look like this. It's that we need that engine up front saying, here, let me pull you along this line of moral standards and goodness. When our focus is the gospel, when our focus is a changed heart, it will change our actions. Knowing Jesus means you have a new engine. You're a new creation with new desires, and our focus can't just be changing how we behave. It must be changing our heart, and only God can do that. You don't have the power to change your heart. Only God can do that. That's what salvation is all about. God changing our heart, which produces a love for him, which produces good works. Number three, salvation isn't just about experiencing the power of God. It's about knowing and communing with God himself. Simon was amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, Simon was this person that was awing people all over town. People were looking at the stuff he was doing and was like, man, this dude's legit. He's awesome. But he sees what Peter and John are doing when they show up on the scene and he sees the power of the Holy Spirit and he's blown away. He's like, that's way more than I've ever seen. I, want, I gotta have that. So he's amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes immediately that he doesn't have it and he wants it. The problem is he's more interested in experiencing the power of God than he is intimacy with God. God's power is just an attribute of who he is. God is so much more than just his power. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's infinite. He's everything. He's more than just power. He's bigger than the things he creates and the miracles he performs. But so many people come to Jesus for what they think Jesus can do for them. They come to Jesus thinking, man, if I, if I come 
to church. If I come to Jesus, he'll fix my finances. If I come to Jesus, he'll fix my marriage. If I come to Jesus, he's going to fix my kids. He's going to fix my health problem. He's going to fix all this stuff. And that's what we come to Jesus for. And when we do that, we're more interested in the benefits of Jesus than we are knowing Jesus. Listen, this morning, intimacy with God is the treasure of the gospel. That's the treasure. Intimacy with God is the treasure of the gospel. Any other pursuit is simply idolatry. I'm not saying that asking God to heal you or asking God to fix those things are bad things, but when you come to Jesus for those things, you're coming for those things, you're not coming for Jesus. Jesus is the treasure of the gospel. The fact that you get to know him, commune with him, and have a relationship with him, that is the treasure of the gospel. Remember the woman at the well. What does Jesus tell her? He says, look, I have this water, and if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. We come to Jesus, want all these other things, and Jesus is saying, look, I am the water. If you just drink of me, everything else pales in comparison. I will give you life. I will sustain you. So many people want the miracles, they want the power, but they don't want Jesus. They look across creation and they see all these things that God has made and they're like, this is beautiful and I want that. All the while not realizing that they can have a relationship with the creator. Simon had a faulty understanding of salvation and sadly so many have the same misunderstanding. They come to Jesus for what he can do for them rather than come to Jesus simply for Jesus. Salvation isn't about the fruit of knowing Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. And finally, Simon had a faulty understanding of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. All right, so that's a... Kind of a weird verse, right? Because we've been taught our whole life that when people come to know Christ, they immediately receive the Holy Spirit, right? So this can be confusing when you look at it at first. So I'm going to give you three schools of thought that, that people believe on this particular text, all right? One, there are theologies out there that believe that after you come to know Christ, you get this second blessing of the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's what, that, this is one of the texts they use to prove their point. Two, there are people on the far end of that spectrum, all right? So that you got that over there. They got people on this other end of the spectrum who say, all right, this particular instance in Acts was not normative. It was, it was just something that God did in, for this specific moment in time because, you know, there's this huge barrier between Jerusalem and Samaria, and those two, those two people, groups of people hated each other. And so, you know, this church is building in Samaria. It needed some kind of apostolic authority to come down. It needed Peter and John to come down to prove that, that something had really taken place there so that the two churches would be united. Now, a lot of people believe that. Problem I have with that is it's not in the text. 
I feel like people are just like, I don't really want to believe the charismatic part, so I'm going to err on this side, right? I don't believe what those people over there believe because that's not what I've been taught my whole life. So I'm going to believe this. Here's what I believe. I believe they weren't really saved. That's what I believe. I don't think they were really saved. And I think that when Peter and John got there, they preached the gospel again. And and they heard from the teaching of Peter and John the truth. And they finally realized what was going on and they received the Holy Spirit. That's what I believed happened. But for our context this morning, it doesn't matter what you believe. Because that's not the point I'm trying to make. Here's the point I want to make this morning. Wherever you align, it doesn't change the point. Here's the points I want to make. Number one, the Holy Spirit isn't inferential, but experiential. Okay, what does that mean? 1 John 4, 13 says this, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. This is how we know we're believers. So if you read that text before and you think, man, I'm terrified that that's going to be me, that I'm going to stand before God and say, I did all these things in your name, and God says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. If you hear that text and you're afraid, here's how you can know that you don't have to be afraid. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts is the proof that we have truly been redeemed, that that God has really saved us. If God has saved you this morning, then he's put the Holy Spirit in your heart to help guide and direct you as a believer. And that's not just something that's inferred because, hey, I go to church or I listen to Christian radio or I have a Christian phrase on my Instagram account or I, uh, I said a prayer at VBS when I was a kid. That's not something that we just infer. It's something that we actually know and experience. You, you know you have the Holy Spirit because he speaks and convicts your heart every day. If you have the Holy Spirit, you know you have the Holy Spirit because he screams in your heart when you sin against God. There are people who come to know Christ, rebel against Jesus, and if they can rebel against Jesus and never face conviction, they don't know Jesus. They never came to truly know Jesus because if you know Jesus and you walk away from Jesus, then the Holy Spirit's screaming in your heart saying, come back to the one that gives life. You've experienced it before. Why are you running from it? And you're gonna eventually come back because your heart won't allow you to do anything else. That's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Paul tells us in Galatians about the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives us and makes present in our lives. Galatians 5, through verse 23. says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. You can know that you have the Spirit because you experience him in your life, molding you and shaping you into the person that God wants you to be. Causing you to be these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's not just something that we know about intellectually. He's someone who lives inside of us and changes us. If he's there, there will be fruit. Simon didn't have the Holy Spirit, and he realized it when he started seeing the effects of it in other people. When Simon starts looking at other people around him receiving the Holy Spirit, he realizes immediately, I don't have that. Please let me buy it from you is what he says. Which leads us to our next point. The Holy Spirit isn't something to manipulate. He's someone to surrender to. 
Simon wanted to harness the Holy Spirit for his own glory. Remember his background. He's a magician. He's a con artist. And he realizes, man, if I have that, I'll be unstoppable. There's no, there won't be a better show in town if I have the Holy Spirit. Reminds me of televangelists. You watch TV and see these televangelists on TV. And what do they do? God's Spirit will bless you. If only you give $10,000 to my ministry today. Right? What is that? That's Simon. That's what Simon wanted. He wanted to be able to manipulate the Holy Spirit so that he could profit from the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John are like, what are you doing? You obviously don't know God because you're trying to manipulate the situation. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's presence isn't for our own glory but for God's. God didn't give you his spirit to live inside of you so that you could bask in your own glory. He gave you his spirit inside of you for his own glory. His purpose is to empower us to love God, love others, and make disciples. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit, not for your glory, but so that you could be empowered to do the things that he's commanded of you to do, which is to love him, love other people, and make disciples. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. It's not something to manipulate. It's something to surrender to. Peter and John weren't just healing and convicting hearts according to their own will. It wasn't like they had this Holy Spirit and they were like, you get the Holy Spirit and you get the Holy Spirit and you get the Holy Spirit. That's not what they were doing. They were hearing the voice of God saying, bless that person, heal that person, heal that person, heal that person. They were surrendering to the call of God in their life. They weren't just wielding this power at will. They were being led by God to use the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory and not their own. Simon was the opposite. He was a prideful manipulator that wanted the power of God without surrendering to God. So Peter calls Simon out in verse 24. He says, but Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He says this, you have no part or share in this matter, meaning you don't know Jesus. Because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. And here's his response. Simon says this, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. We don't know anything else about Simon. We don't see him anywhere else in, te- in, in scripture. We don't know where his story lands, but personally, I don't think Simon ever really got it. And here's why I don't think Simon got it, because his last statement that we see is evident that Simon doesn't have intimacy with God. Right? What does Peter say? He says, pray to God and repent. You, pray to God and repent. What does Simon say? I don't know that God. You pray for me. You pray for me. That, 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 that whatever the punishment that you're talking about doesn't happen to me. I don't think Simon ever really got it. I think it's evident that, that Simon totally misunderstood what the gospel was. He had a total misunderstanding of what salvation was. He wanted to escape the consequences of sin without escaping sin itself. 
And many of us this morning may realize maybe we have a misunderstanding of the gospel too. Maybe the gospel isn't really what we grew up thinking it was. Maybe for whatever reason, we thought it was just this thing that we come to, this this religion that we follow so that we can be good people so that God will love us and allow us into heaven. It's not the gospel. The gospel is this story of good news that says you are not good and you're at war with God. Because of the great love that God had for you, he sent his son to die on a cross for you and to bear the punishment and the shame of your guilt. And that when you come to that God with a humbled heart and repent of that sin and mourn that sin in your life, that he will save you from that sin and change your heart so that you no longer desire the things of this world that you desire the things of God. And not only that, but that he redeems you for his purpose to be used by him to glorify him with your life by building his kingdom and sharing his gospel with others. That's the gospel. And if you're living for anything else, it's a false gospel. If you believe anything else, it's a false gospel. It's not what is in the word my greatest fear as a pastor is that people would sit under my teaching and walk away with a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. So this morning, my prayer for you is that you would realize what the reality of God's love really is. And that you wouldn't view it as this thing that I have to fix myself before I come to God, but you would realize that God's love is all about the fact that he understands that your best is but filthy rags, but he loves you anyway. And he wants to save you. You would just come to him with a humbled heart, not a heart that says I'm a good person, but a heart that says I'm an evil person with a broken heart and allow him to fix you, to redeem you, to save you. I ask you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. The band's going to come up here in just a second and lead us in one last song. The challenge this morning is a simple one. you're realizing this morning that you don't really know Jesus. Then in this moment, this morning, on Memorial Day weekend, surrender yourself to God. Acknowledge your sin. Realize that you're not a good person. Mourn that sin and ask God to save you from your sin and surrender yourself to him and make him the Lord of your life. That's the challenge this morning. If you don't know, I'm not saying, did you say a prayer when you were a kid? I'm not saying, have you come to church your whole life? I'm not saying, have, have you done this church game for a long time? I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? And the evidence that you know Jesus is his spirit moving and working in your life. 
If the Spirit's not there, then you don't know Jesus. You know religion. And religion is never good enough. Only faith in Jesus is good enough. And so this morning, if you're coming to the realization that, hey, I don't know Jesus, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you grew up in this church, but yet for some reason you just never really understood the gospel until this moment. And I get that in that moment there might be a fear of like, what will people think of me? I've grown up in this church my whole life. If I walk down there and admit the fact that I've never really truly known Jesus, what are people going to think about me? Who cares? Who cares? Because knowing Jesus is more valuable than man's opinion of you. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're new to church, you're new to faith, but you're realizing this morning that you don't know Jesus and you want to know Jesus. You want to have a relationship with him. You want to give your life to him. The same challenge will be for you is, is in a moment, I'm going to stand up front. These altars are going to be open on the sides for people to pray. The band's going to sing, and I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to know Jesus and to make sure that you understand it and that you get what that, what that is all about. So if that's you here in a moment as the band sings, please come down and let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We acknowledge this morning that we are sinful beings who pursue flesh and worldly things constantly. And given in our own strength, we would pursue it always. God, we're thankful for your mercy and your grace and your love that pulls us towards yourself. So God, I pray that we would surrender to you this morning, that we would would give ourselves to you completely because you are the life giver. The things that you provide are amazing, but you're better than even those things. You're of more value than the things that you've created. And so, God, I pray we would never elevate the creation above the creator in our hearts. And God, I pray that as your Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and, and, and convicts us and speaks to us, God, I pray that we would surrender to that leading in our life. God, we thank you for that conviction that we're not left into our own strength, but your Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to be victorious over the sin in our life and over temptation. God, we're so thankful for the fact that you love us despite the fact that we were sinners. God, I pray if anyone this morning doesn't know you as their Savior, that they would make that decision this morning, whether it's in their seat, whether it's talking to someone who they came with, or whether it's coming down and talking with me. God, I pray that they would make the most important decision in their life this morning to surrender themselves to you. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that's, that's done church their whole life, they've grown up in church and they're afraid in this moment to walk down and admit that they haven't really known you. They've known religion, but they haven't really known you. God, I pray that you would soften their heart and convict them and, and speak to them and, and give them peace to walk down here and surrender themselves to you. Let your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, 
grow, give, and go.